I often say to Christian colleagues that my job is in some ways easier than theirs because the only soul I have to save is my own. Welcome to episode 53 of What We Will Abide. I'm Sam Schindler. I've never really had a rabbi. What does that mean? When you grow up in a Jewish community here in America, and you become associated with the Jewish institutions where you live, be they a school, a Y, or a synagogue, you find that life sometimes necessitates forging a connection with someone who plays a role different from that of a lawyer, a therapist, or a teacher but somehow combines elements of all of those professions. And in the Jewish community, the modern era, that person is very often a rabbi. Until about nine years ago, I lived in cities around the country and the world wherein being Jewish was not uncommon. Places like New York, Chicago, Los Angeles, and certainly Jerusalem, where being Jewish is almost mainstream. The move to Lancaster, Pennsylvania, brought me and my family to a place where, for the first time, Culturally and religiously, I was very much in the minority. It had never occurred to me in previous years to seek out a rabbi, to connect with someone on a spiritual, intellectual, political, and personal level. But in Lancaster, I found out why people have rabbis. My rabbi is Jack Paskoff. He's the rabbi at Shari Shemayim Synagogue, the Reform Synagogue in Lancaster City. I can say the Reform Synagogue because there's only one. Unlike the large metropolises I mentioned earlier, all of whom have multiple reform synagogues, multiple conservative synagogues, orthodox, reconstructionist, revival, and unaffiliated synagogues as well. You get the idea. I find that I'm drawn to Rabbi Jack Paskoff because of our similar backgrounds, worldviews, and political leanings, although we do disagree here and there. We've developed a strong relationship over the past eight or nine years, and he's become someone I seek out for advice, perspective, professional partnerships, and good conversation. This past May, the rabbi invited me to a social justice conference in Washington, D.C. The conference happened to coincide with a major protest happening outside the Supreme Court regarding Roe v. Wade and the suddenly very fragile right to choose. On the drive home back to Lancaster, I took some time to ask Rabbi Jack a few questions I had been meaning to ask him on the record. I'm Jack Paskoff. I'm the rabbi of the congregation Shari Shemayim in Lancaster. Uh, Shari Shemayim is Lancaster's Reform Congregation. I've been the rabbi there for 26 years. Uh, Reform, by its nature, is among the more liberal branches in Jewish life. Uh, Our congregation represents about 335 families in Lancaster County. 26 years is a long time. Um, You're not originally from Lancaster County. Um, How did you wind up there? Lancaster was my three to five year plan uh-huh. in 1993. The typical rabbinic path at the time was you finish school, you become an assistant or associate rabbi for a few years, then you go to a smaller congregation, do your own thing for a while, 
And after you've acquired some experience there, you look to move to larger Jewish communities and larger congregations. So it was my three to five year plan, but I liked the congregation. It was a good place to raise my family. And so over the years, it became home. Uh, it's very different from home, though. Very different from home. Although one of the things that I often talk about, because there's a biblical piece of it also, is that I no longer know where home is. Uh, there's where I grew up, where I no longer feel at home. Uh, there was a very fi pleasant five-year sojourn in New Brunswick, New Jersey. But I came to that knowing that it would be three to five years, and that would be it. So uh, it's been Lancaster for 26 years. I still hold on to certain things from New York, uh, most notably food, the Times, and the Mets. Uh, but uh, I don't know that I've ever said Lancaster is home. What, what's the most foreign thing to you when you arrived in Lancaster? And maybe it's still foreign now. Lancaster is the first community I've ever lived in where I have been part of such a small minority. I always knew being Jewish made me a minority, but when you grow up on Long Island, go to college at Brandeis, go to spend a year in Israel and then four years of rabbinical school in New York, uh, and even in central New Jersey, we weren't as small a minority as we are in Pennsylvania, in Lancaster. Uh, and being a minority there is twofold. One is religiously, and the other is politically. I have never lived in such a conservative political climate as I find in Lancaster. So that's probably the biggest, was the biggest shock to the system uh, on arriving in a, in a community like this one. How do you bridge the gap? Like, how do you cope? <laughs> if, there, if you can bridge the gap, how do you do it? First of all, as a, as a recognizable Jew, uh, not because of my garb, but because of my, um, because of the public nature of some of the things I've been involved in. Uh, that has actually been very helpful for me. And I do take advantage of it to a certain extent. Uh, I am likely to get the phone call when there's any kind of issue that requires a religious response and they want to do something on Judaism. Uh, and that included a few years ago someone asked me for some publication what I would be doing for Easter. So I had to explain that uh, that probably was not really the question to be asking me. Uh, but I think one of the biggest things I found that helps bridge the gap religiously and politically are uh, genuinely kind people. I don't always agree with them politically, but I think in many ways, I guess it was George Bush the first who talked about compassionate conservatives. And I find an element of that in Lancaster that uh, gives me the opportunity to talk to people about what does it mean to be a home to refugees? Uh, what does it mean to look differently at interactions with the Muslim community? So these have been some very meaningful interactions with people who share the goals, even if they don't necessarily share the methodologies of, of reaching them. These are people I can have conversations with. These are people who will show up for me 
and hopefully I've shown up for them. Uh, so that's definitely one the biggest thing that helps me bridge that gap. So speaking of the, of that uh, political gap or the political ideology, um, you know you've you've already stated sort of on record here uh, your political ideology where you stand. I was witness to a public declaration of your um, political stance on a particular issue this afternoon. If the Democrat Party platform isn't through all night long, where do they go? I feel very content with Roe v. Wade. Roe allows Under what circumstances? Doe v. Bolton said that based on any health reason, right, psychological, financial, physical, emotional, you can get an abortion. That itself opened to up the save door for a life. abortion through all night To save a life. Of the life of the child? Yeah. There is no child. There's a fetus. You know, immediately afterwards, I thought to myself, well, Rabbi Jackson on record as um, arguing with this pro-life woman outside the Supreme Court, which is where we were, amidst all of these um, people who were, you know, against banning abortion. And I thought to myself, how does he do that? How do you put yourself in the breach like that all the time where you know that you're speaking up specifically uh, on a con controversial issue that people are going to disagree with you on directly? And since you have a diverse community in terms of people's political beliefs and you deal with people on the right side of things all the time, how do you sort of reconcile putting yourself in that kind of potential danger to your reputation? I've been blessed with a congregation that has supported me. Now, supporting me doesn't mean that they always agree with me, although I think most people do. One of the biggest challenges when I arrived in Lancaster was that there was an old guard in the congregation that really wanted to continue to see the Jewish community fly under the radar. And my public positions tended to rob them of the opportunity to do what they wanted in that regard. I, I wanted people to know how I felt. I wanted people to know how Judaism felt about certain issues, where there was a clear-cut answer. Uh, I wanted to make a statement about justice. Can you give an example of one of the early instances where you wanted to make a statement about justice where perhaps you got pushback, perhaps you didn't, but this was like one of your first forays into that into that arena that you took a sort of a courageous step. I was uh, blessed in the very early years to have known and worked with the gentleman who was then the faith leader at the Unitarian Universalist Church. Uh, his name was Kit Howell. And Kit was very much someone I admired and was that voice. So I was able to tag team a little bit with him, although he definitely carried a lot of the burden at that point. Uh, one of the things that came up fairly early on was one of the periodic threats of the Klan to come through town. And that required a response, but it wasn't difficult for the Jewish community to get on board with that. Then there were private things. There was a meeting with the county commissioners fair housing for people who are gay or lesbian and sitting down with the Republican commissioners at the time uh, when they talked about questions like, are you telling me I need to rent a place in my home if I have a two-family home to someone I believe is going to hell? 
so that was an interesting conversation. Yeah. Because one of the things I said to him was, I'm pretty sure you believe that I'm going to hell also, just by being Jewish. There are certain things that need to be said. I don't think I have pushed the envelope too much on Jewish belief and practice. I've tried to avoid topics or taking public positions on topics where I can't be authentic in my being a rabbi and presenting a Jewish message. There may be causes that I support privately for which I don't believe I can develop a sound Jewish message. But it's hard to argue when I can quote sources that say that this is the position we need to be taking. People might be uncomfortable with it, but I'm presenting them with Torah. Uh, So they haven't really objected too much within the congregation. Uh, I've gotten some pushback outside the congregation. Uh, but that's never been something to, to bother me. Maybe it's the New Yorker and me. Has there ever been an instance where, speaking in terms of sources, Jewish texts and Jewish sources, you ever found yourself at odds with somebody outside the community, say in a different faith community, who said, um, this issue is uh, determined by our texts and our sources, which sort of fly in the face of yours, and so we can't see eye to eye on this? The, the classic case of that is talking to people in the Catholic Church about abortion. Uh, I, a number of years ago, took an online course on community organizing, and one of the phrases used in that world is, no permanent friends, no permanent enemies, which forces you to moderate your message somewhat. Uh, So I'm not going to talk to the Catholic Church about abortion but I can talk to them about poverty. And the interesting thing about that uh, meeting with the county commissioners on fair housing for people who are gay or lesbian was that the Catholic priest was there along with me and other colleagues. And when I asked him how he could be there knowing the church's position on homosexuality, as you know, he, he quoted the line about hate the sin, love the sinner. His position was that Everyone deserved to be safe in the middle of winter when it's snowing and cold and they deserve to have housing. So we're able to find ways to communicate, and even on issues where we can't, we try to preserve the relationships for that next issue that may come along when we need to know who our our allies really are. Describe the process by which you have found that you have needed to shift one direction or another on an issue that you were entrenched upon that you thought you wouldn't ever move one way or another on. Like, what has moved you to change your mind about things? I haven't as yet changed my policy on interfaith marriage. Uh, I don't currently officiate. But there are realities on the ground that change. I've been a rabbi for over 30 years now. The demographics of the Jewish community have changed. Our position as Jews in American life has changed. To assume that something I believed 30 years ago is going to be true forever is something I no longer feel comfortable doing. Uh, I don't know where I'm going to land with this, but it's something that I'm actively thinking about. Uh, I have questions about 
how I can be more available and more accommodating and still be authentically Jewish. Now, part of this is very personal also, and I think this is true for many issues. I am now being asked to do weddings for people who I named when they were born. There's a deep personal connection. That makes it harder. And I found this with a lot of people and a lot of issues. I know evangelical pastors who would rail against homosexuality until someone in their family revealed that that was their orientation. When you can attach a face to an issue, when you can see someone's pain in a different way, it forces you to re-examine things from time to time. Re-examining is not always changing, but I think it's healthy for us to look at things critically. And I even say this to people about belief in God from a Jewish perspective, and in particular from a liberal Jewish perspective theologically. I will often say to people, if your theology today is the same as it was 20 years ago, you've likely missed something along the way. How can your theology be the same after seeing suffering in the world? How can your theology be the same after seeing injustice in the world? How can your theology be the same the first time you look at someone who has died and recognize that this is one of those deaths that you look at and say it's not fair? I have to wrestle to come to terms with that. And so I hope I'll be open to change and open to possibilities uh, throughout my career and throughout my life. How can you have the same theology when you see, for example, your um, child's face for the first time, right? Like that, I mean, I, I mean, that might be cheesy or, or, or cliche to say, but like uh, for me personally, since I had had children, whether you want to call it theology or whatever, you, you know, the purpose of life or whatever you want to call it, um, I would say that that had a profound effect on where my thinking was on that. Now, it took a long time to kind of coalesce and turn into something concrete. It isn't just for me, at least, it isn't just sort of suffering and tragedy, which has pushed me towards thinking a different way. Um, and I, I would assume that you agree wholeheartedly with that. Uh, wholeheartedly. Um, we fail somewhere when we think of seeing that face of a newborn child as a cliché. It's, it's something many people experience. It's one thing to look at someone else's newborn uh, it's another thing entirely to look at your own. Uh, and if you're not changed by that experience, I worry about you. Yeah. Uh, if that experience doesn't move you in a certain way. Just in terms of shifting on particular issues, whether or not you've landed on a particular point of view, which is notably different or not, you and I um, think we agree, except I think, I think that Actually, I think that well, one of us, I don't know which one it is, um, thinks that we disagree more on Israel than the other one. Like, I, 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 One of us is pretty convinced that we're in complete disagreement with each other. And I don't know if that's actually true. Um, but you have described yourself as someone who has shifted in terms of your perspective on you know, Israeli policy, Israel-Palestine, Palestinian rights. Um, what precipitated that? I think a lot of it, again, is hearing stories of people's pain. Uh, so I 
don't think I was ever a right winger on Israel, uh, but I will admit that I used to stutter over the word occupation. Uh, the suggestion that Israel bore some responsibility. Uh, if you had asked me 25 years ago, if you had asked me 10 years ago, I probably would have uh, said that that can't be the case. Uh, I have concerns about what's happening on all sides of this equation. Uh, I do have concerns about the ways in which Israel conducts itself. I have concerns about the ways in which the Pal Palestinians con conduct themselves. <clears throat> I still struggle with talking about Palestine instead of Palestinians. Uh, and I think part of that for me is ideology, and part of it is my view of facts. Uh, one of the things I always ask people about when we're talking about some kind of amicable agreement with the Palestinians is who, th who speaks for the Palestinians. Is it Fatah on the West Bank? Is it Hamas in Gaza? Is it Hezbollah in southern Lebanon? So to speak of a unified Palestine to me is something that I don't yet see. But to see Palestinians who truly suffer on a day-to-day -day basis by uh, the limitations placed on their movement, by the limitations placed on their ability to earn a living, uh, this has become deeply troubling for me. Uh, the idea that Israel employs methods that, when used against us, for example, in certain periods, like collective punishment, this is abhorrent to me. Uh, and yet the Israeli government does use that. It is a tactic of the Israeli government. Uh, so I need to be more critical in my own thinking. Uh, I need to be exposed to more, uh, and so I have definitely shifted on this. I don't know that I love the left and right designations here as much as I do for other issues. Uh, to me, and maybe this is just my own uh, my own ego, but I, to me, this is about justice. It's not about left and right. What is the one thing or a couple of key things that a person who would like to be, like to sound knowledgeable uh, and sound well-informed and be well-informed about Israel-Palestine that others are missing? It's, it's a topic that people yell about all the time. Um, it usually just devolves into nonsense. What are the key components of the topic of the issue that everybody should educate themselves about so that they can be knowledgeable and access it from a, a, a position of knowledge instead of ignorance? First of all, like so much in American life, we choose the echo chambers in which we live. We choose the media outlet that tells the story we want to hear. I think we need to be open to hearing more and viewing it all critically. So in particular, I don't do it on a daily basis, but when it comes to Israel, and times of specifically of, of more conflict, uh, I check multiple media sources. 
American sources, Israeli sources. I read Al Jazeera when things are particularly contentious. I want to know what's being said all around. Uh, I want to look at not only what's in print, but what some of the same media outlets are putting online, because those are often two very different things. And ultimately, I believe you have to talk to people. Last year, I led a congregational trip to Israel. It turned out that our bus driver was a Muslim Arab uh, who was a resident of East Jerusalem, which is rather this odd no-man's land where he's not a refugee, he's not fully Israeli, and he's very professional. We got to talking after a few days. It was somewhat challenging because he speaks Arabic and Hebrew and just a smattering of English. My Hebrew is no longer what it should be. I know four words of Arabic. Uh, So it was an interesting conversation, but I said to him, what is it like for you when you're driving Jewish groups to hear the story of Jewish triumphalism and the miracle that Israel represents? He uh, tried at first to be very professional, uh, telling me that he doesn't really listen uh, to what's being said by the tour guides in the conversation. And I pushed him a little bit on it, and I hope he got the sense that I was pushing because I genuinely wanted to know and hear what his experiences were. He shared some of the indignities that he lives with, and that gave me the opportunity to learn about someone else's pain. That makes you revisit an issue. What is the purpose and or objective of the Interfaith Coalition? The Lancaster Interfaith Coalition. Yes. It was really initially to stand with the Muslim community. Over the years, among other things, we've had, I believe, three vigils now on the eve before Election Day. Uh, These are people with whom I've sat on many panels to learn about each other's faith traditions. Uh, And these are people who, uh, this past year especially, have stood with our Jewish community after uh, Pittsburgh and Poway. Uh, And so that ability to stand with each other, uh, to support each other, to celebrate with each other, large numbers of these folks from different faith communities have been present at our Shabbat services, our Sabbath services. Uh, We have been honored to be hosted in particular at the Islamic Community Center of Lancaster uh, and found kinship and friendship. So hopefully it's about uh, standing for justice, standing with each other, and uh, recognizing a common humanity. What does Judaism have to offer to the world today, because you talked about you know the interfaith coalition, um, and you talked about how people always call you when they want a reaction to something. What does Judaism have to offer the world? And the world can be like anything. It can be the political world, the social world, uh, the literary world, the academic world. However, you choose to define it. First of all, I am liberated somewhat compared to some of my Christian friends and colleagues, in that I'm not out to convert anyone. We are not a proselytizing faith. Uh, I often say to Christian colleagues that my job is in some ways easier than theirs because the only soul I have to save is my own. Uh, 
we have a notion in Judaism that the righteous of all peoples have a place in the world to come, whatever that world to come might or might not be. Uh, so to me, in terms of what we have to offer the world, uh, it is a sense of pursuing justice, not that it is something that we possess uniquely, but it is, to me, a core of my Judaism. It's what motivates and animates my social activism because of things that I learned and internalized as a child. It's also not only about Jewish theology and text, it's also about Jewish history and times when we look at the world and wonder why people didn't speak up when we were the sacrificial lambs of the day. So what we have to offer is a passion for justice, a commitment to tikkun olam, as we refer to it, repairing the world, and a commitment to pursuing peace. One of the things I talk about a lot is verbs, and how when I look at Hebrew, I always and English as well for that matter. I always look at verbs. We're, we're told, uh, once biblically and one in a later tradition, of two things we're supposed to pursue. We're supposed to pursue justice, and we're supposed to pursue peace. And I talk about the meaning of the verb pursue. Uh, we don't admire it from afar. We don't just wait for it to come. Uh, we have to pursue it. And if something we have to offer then is the willingness and the ability to enter into partnerships with like-minded people in the pursuit of those two things. We had a little text study during lunch yesterday and one of the things that came up was the concept of the chosen people which gets often misinterpreted, mistranslated, um, misconceived. What is your understanding of, because you know, people who are listening to this may have this concept of like They've heard that term before. How do you understand this biblical concept of a chosen people? How do you define it, and how do you how would you like to see it utilized? The, the context of the conversation yesterday was about entering into a covenant. Mm -hmm. So there's it is a covenant and a chosenness that is connected to obligation. This is not a free gift that God chose to bestow on the Jewish people one day for us to enjoy the benefits without having to do the work. Uh, if anything, in some ways, this sense of chosenness has made our lives more challenging. Uh, it has called upon us to be something that is stubbornly different from what we have seen around us in too many communities and societies. Uh, so it's not chosenness for reward. It's chosenness for true effort to fulfill a covenant as we understand it. Uh, there's a, a, a notion that sounds somewhat elitist in some ways, that Jews have 613 commandments to follow, uh, whereas humanity as a whole only has seven. So it's almost this 
look at me, I have so much more that I need to do to fulfill my mission because I'm Jewish. But on, when I can remove the elitist sound of that, uh, what's left is I have work to do in the world. That doesn't negate someone else's work in the world. Uh, it just obligates me. Uh, and in that regard, the way others behave, the way others act, whatever motivates their decisions, uh, whatever motivates their passions, I respect that. For me, this is part of a covenantal system. Is that the essence of Judaism? When I'm asked that question about the essence of Judaism, uh, one of the things I will always talk about is about wrestling. Uh, I never appreciated scholastic wrestling until my nephew and then my sons became wrestlers uh, and realized that what we watch on TV entertainment wrestling is something vastly different. Wrestling uh, as a Jew is intimacy. It's being tied up with God. It's being tied up with the world. Uh, it goes back to the story of Jacob. Uh, and the story of Jacob's wrestling match in the middle of the night isn't clear about who his opponent is. Uh, so we wrestle with ourselves, we wrestle with God, we wrestle with humanity. Uh, and there's an interesting phrase at the end of that story when uh, Jacob's name is changed by his opponent. Uh, it, it says you wrestled with beings divine and human. And the next word in English is often, and you prevailed. Uh, another reading of that is to say, and you proved yourself capable. Uh, remember that Jacob limped for the rest of his life after that wrestling match. Uh, but he proved himself capable facing down that opponent, whether, again, it was himself. Some suggest it was actually his brother, who represents an otherness that we need to examine. God, his conscience, uh, but he proved himself capable and worthy. Uh, so to me, it's about the wrestling match. So what do you wrestle with? <laughs> I, I wrestle with my fears for the state of our country and the world. I wrestle personally with being the best man, the best Jew, the best rabbi I can be. Uh, I wrestle with my own conscience on certain issues. So this is an ongoing story. And what I learned about wrestling from watching my nephew and my kids, there's a penalty for stalling. There's a penalty for fleeing the mat. So I wrestle with how do I stay engaged? Are you despairing because of the current? You said you fear for the state of this country, the state of this world. Is there despair? Is there despondency? Uh... What, what's winning out right now? What's keeping you on the mat? Uh, there are two conflicting things that keep me on the mat. One is a sense of deep concern. I don't know if I like the words despair and despondency, okay. um, but of, of profound concern. Uh, the other is this sense that there are true partners in this work who energize me. And I want to be standing with them at the end of the day. 
thank you for doing this. I've been wanting to do this for a while, and uh, I you know, hope I haven't distracted you too much from your, from your duty. My pleasure. Thank you. That was great. I need something to live by Help me see myself in my reflection I'm in no way surprised by how honest and forthcoming Rabbi Jack Paskoff was during our conversation. But I am extremely grateful to him. On many levels, in fact. Music for this episode by Hannah Bingman and the Maccabees. You can find earlier episodes on the What We Will Abide Facebook page, as well as whatever app you use to listen to podcasts. Just search for What We Will Abide. Also, if you'd like to leave a review on iTunes, this helps new listeners find the show. I'm working on some more local stories, and then some not-so-local stories, so stay tuned. And thank you, as always, for listening. It's also like a record of my life, in a way. Mm-hmm. And the people that I know, and really it's a record of my life, the people that I know, and the people that I have respect for and learn from. I appreciate being included.